Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today retired after 43 years at the bedside in critical care nursing. She earned a master's degree in nursing from UT Austin. The final harvest of Judah Woodbine was published in 2014 when she was 62. Her current work in progress is a novel of autofiction, Clocked Out, a nurse's life after hours. She enjoys being a 70-year-old who drinks wine, contemplates the narratives in Joni Mitchell and Prince lyrics, and writes fiction gleaned from fragments of an ordinary life. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Cynthia Stock. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Cynthia, our opening question is always, so what took you so long to write your first book? Well, there were a few things. First of all, I was working full time. I was a single mom. Um, a lot of times I did a lot of overtime. At one point I was an adjunct faculty member, so I had one and a half jobs. And um, although I had written for a long, long time, met, you know, gone to many classes, many different institutions, um, I really didn't settle down until one day I wrote a short story about a little boy and his character just stuck with me. And um, at the time I had connected with a really, really strong mentor and she encouraged my writing and uh, Judah, my character, uh, actually really became alive for me. You know, a lot of people can hear artists talk about crazy things, but there were times when I actually felt he was in the room. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd see this little creature standing in the room telling me what I was going to write the next day. And once I got to that point, it was just, I couldn't stop. I had started and and couldn't stop after that. So, Well, once you knew you had to write the book, how did you proceed? Did you search for an agent, decide to choose a hybrid or small press, or did you self-publish? Well, I was, I did two things there in Dallas. Uh, there's the Writer's Spirit, which is a you know, nonprofit organization. And then SMU had what was called the Writer's Path. They had a lot of classes um, for, you know, for critiquing and for cultivating a community. And I participated in both of those, mostly though with SMU as the novel mirrored completion. Uh, they had a program where they took a group of select students to New York for agents. And so I did have the chance to meet with several agents. I got requests for full and partial manuscripts 
but I never got an agent. So again, I think this has a lot to do with my age. I decided, you know, I only had so much time. So uh, a friend who also went to New York with me to this particular thing where we met the agents self-published and she said it was great. It worked really well for her. So I, you know, I, I sent out, I think I sent out 50 queries uh, with the first 50 pages. And I just thought, you know what, I'm running out of time. So I self-published and uh, I, I did it with iUniverse. It was a good experience and I was really glad I made the decision. So, Did you have to teach yourself about self-publishing? That's pretty complex, you know, dealing with everything that you have to, to know to self-publish. I learned, I learned so much just flying by the seat of my pants as it were. I mean, iUniverse was great to work with and they were very, very, they were very, very step-by-step. They kind of led you the way. What I didn't know, um, and you know, I'm 70 years old, so I was raised with the basic thing that if you work hard enough, you succeed. Well, that's not true with publishing, obviously. But um, so I learned that I had to market myself, which was so beyond the scope of my experience. You know, when you're a nurse, you go in, the patients are usually glad to see you. You've got, you know, you've got a very, very uh, science-based practice and you you know exactly what you're doing. And when I got into self-publishing, it was like, oh my gosh, what do I do next? and so I, I wouldn't call it a bucket list, but I made it a list of things that I tried to do, you know, where I'd get readings. Um, uh, I, I had a few of those where I, you know, tried to do, I got flyers. I had all different sorts of things for marketing my book. But to tell you the truth, I didn't know anything about marketing books. So there I was. And um, I, you know, I was disappointed in a way, but the thing is I thought, if I were to check off the things that I accomplished when I was doing the learning, I would think I, I say to myself, you accomplished a lot. And I was very, I, you know, to this day, I'm very proud of some of the stuff that I accomplished. So. Publishing a book is a huge accomplishment at <laughs> any, any age. What you mentioned marketing, have you found anything that works or something that doesn't work? Um, I think the biggest thing for me is that you have to learn to be able to really market yourself and and sell yourself. My confidence level when I started, um, if we look at the continuum, I was like at the bottom. And now as as I've worked and learned and again, engaged in the community, uh, I I know so much more about what I'm doing. Um, That's made a big difference. The other thing is, is that um, through some of the, my mentors, they encouraged me to get stuff out, short stories out published, um, because you have to have, in today's market, you have to have some sort of street credibility. So if you go to someone and you say, well, no, I've never published anything. It's like, they're going to look at you. Well, then why should I publish your book? Whereas if you publish some short stories um, over a period of time, they at least will give you a, you know, a serious look. At what you know, at what you're doing. So um, I've learned to look at at you know literary journals. Um, I have one mentor who's very very big on looking at the journals, looking at the readership, 
So if you get something, you know, if you get something accepted, how many readers do they archive your work? And I mean, it's a whole new world for me. I mean, the, the nurse that I was, it, there was like a cement wall between nursing and becoming a, an author. So it's like right now I'm, I'm in the point, I, my goal is always to get like four things published a year. So I've got two things published this year. So far. that's a lot. That's a lot. Oh, I'm excited. You say that you write from an ordinary life, but service as a critical care nurse is far from ordinary, more divine, maybe than ordinary. Is that your is that your time during uh, your nursing career, your inspiration for clocked out? Oh, absolutely. A lot of what I'm writing in Clocked Out, it stems from that. Um, and, you know, you, I, I know people talk about, is it a calling? Is it a career? Is it a job? Is it a paycheck? And it's like, I think when I started nursing, I had so much to learn. It was a learning curve. But as I, I thoroughly enjoyed my patients and, you know, in ICU, the patients are sick. The families are demanding. Sometimes it's not always easy. Sometimes there's a great deal of loss, but I truly, truly loved my work. I loved my patients as if they were family and my colleagues were of the highest standard and I always trusted them and depended on them. So it really was, um, it's kind of an interesting parallel because you have a, a community of nursing and it actually becomes your family and it's the same way I think with the arts, with writing, is you try and cultivate and engage with your community and they become your family support. And, you know, they live with you through all your successes and, and all your rejections. And, and um, I, again, it, it's my, my next novel is inspired by my work because, you know, it, it was, I did that for over half my life. So I have a lot to say. Well, some of our listeners may not know what autofiction means. Can you explain what that means to us? Well, to me, I, in fact, I just took a seminar uh, from a woman who was helping explain that. And I'm reading a book called the Copenhagen Trilogy that it supposedly is um, mandatory reading in Denmark. Um, and it is a huge piece of autofiction. And what it is, is it, it's autobiographical, but there are tweaks in it where you can tell that this, like this woman in this one section does a lot of reference to um, the color green. And I thought that, that that's fiction, that's fiction because that is not how the world is seen. And so for me, what I just, you know, what I gleaned from auto fiction is if you look at the reality of like say my life, I can give you, my life gives me setting, it gives me characters and those are the real things. And then the fiction part of it is where I'll tweak it, where I add the spice, which makes the story go beyond the mundane of my biography. Hmm. That's how I interpret it. Now, that may be entirely wrong, but um, like I say, from the, sem from the seminar I took, that's kind of how I perceive it. Well, how do you determine the plots of your books? Um, to be honest, I'm a, I'd like to say I was raised hard work pays off. What I do is I have a dedicated 
so many days and so many days to writing a week. And if I'm in the middle of the story, I work on the story. If I'm, you know, hit, a, hit like a rough patch, then I write just to write as an exercise. And so, for instance, right now I'm, I, I go to the gym every day. And so I started writing a story about the gym and that atmosphere and that uh, kind of tribe of people that always goes to the gym at the same time every day. And now it's turned into I'm working on something, a short story where it has two different endings. And so I'm again, I'm playing with structure um, and I'm trying to work out now how are you going to get the reader to read both endings and how are you going to do that smoothly? But um, a lot of it is practice. I mean, I truly believe the outliers, when I read the outliers, which talked about uh, any, any person who's pursuing something, whether it's music, art, painting, writing, that um, at least 10,000 hours goes into the practice of what you're trying to do. The Beatles, they explained in the book, they explained that the Beatles played 10,000 hours in dive bars before they hit it big. So it's like, so I dedicate so much time a week to writing because I want to get to my 10,000 hours. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about this book that you are, um, that you've written and then read a few paragraphs for us so that we can hear your tone and voice in the book. Well, the final harvest of Judah Woodbine was inspired by my husband. Um, my husband was a polio survivor. He got polio when he was eight. And I think, um, I think it's kind of timely, uh, although the book was written well before COVID, but I think it's timely in that people who didn't deal with polio did not realize the, the far-reaching effects of it. So in this story, what happens is the protagonist, Judah, um, he's a mature man, he's married, and he accidentally kills his wife. And the story is a retrospective of the child who suffered back, well, back in the late 40s. And this was a, this child was a farm, farm boy, lived on a farm. Back in the 40s, those children were separated from their families. They were taken to wherever there was a hospital. They didn't see their, my husband didn't see his family for two years. Um, and back then, they didn't know about PTSD from hospitalization. Uh, so the, the backstory that, that explains this accidental killing has to do with the, the PTSD suffered from child separation from his family. And um, then it picks up, and as an adult, Judah has two decisions to make. Is he going to heal, or is he going to continue to kind of dwell in darkness. And so this actually, to, for me, was written as a point of healing and redemption um, and also, you know, constructing a, an identity of what it looks like for a child to have PTSD and how they got it. But when I started writing it, the PTSD thing was not in my head. That was something that struck me, you know, after I had published the book and, and talked about it. Uh, you know, when I presented it, and it's like it really has come full circle now when we're hearing about all these things with COVID. Well, read for us so that we can, we can hear more about it. I show, uh, you know, I 
I wanted to, I, I had two places I was going to read from. And the one place was when he shoots his wife. But I thought that's pretty common. So what I'm reading from, uh, Judah has a brother named Sam. Uh, he, again, this is after he's been taken from his farm. And he's in the, the polio sanitarium. Sam is his brother. His father and mother dropped him off at the hospital. And he's, and I, and I don't know how much you know about the steam wraps that they use for polio children, but the nurse is in his room getting ready to fit him for his steam wraps. And so this is the scene I'm going to read. So, the bandages. Why does everyone have a bandage on his face? He reached to snatch, to snatch it away like when he yanked Sam's baseball cap from his head. The nurse's hand wasn't big, but it was quick and held him as tight as mother ever had. Don't do that. Don't ever do that. You're here because you're sick. You can make other people sick. The masks protect us. Her voice sounded stern yet fearless. Judah lowered his arm. It had never occurred to him that others might need protecting from him. How could seeing someone's face make them sick? What's going to happen to me? Right now, I'm just measuring you for your wraps. What are those? The fabric looked like the bags father used for grain. They're made to keep the heat in. She drew a figure not much bigger than Judah on the coarse cloth. The back of our truck gets real hot. Judah pictured father's truck going home, skidding to a stop. The tires would scatter rocks and dirt and even kill a snake in the road when father realized they had left him behind. Father would make a big circle rather than a sliding U-turn since Sam was in the back, and they would come and rescue Judah. He was sure Sam was yelling at Father right now to go back. All it would take was one look to connect the two brothers, and Judah would assume his place in the truck next to Sam on their way home. Do you know where you are? The nurse stopped measuring and looked at him. This is a hospital. Judah didn't care. He strained to hear the sound of the truck pulling up close to the window well. You're lucky, you know. In the beginning, no one knew what to do, but now they found ways to get you better. The nurse's head bobbed. She resumed her measurements. Luck was catching a bigger fish than Sam. Luck was hitting a ball so far into the cornfield no one could find it. Luck was getting the milking done so he had time to go fishing before supper. Being here had nothing to do with luck. That's very, very nice, Cindy. Thank you. Now, my mother and grandmother both had polio, but they never talked about it. Really? Well, what impressed me about my husband was when he talked about it, he talked about it like it happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. And that was so moving and so impressive. And I think that's part of what inspired me. So. And hasn't the medical community come so far in what they tried and what worked or didn't work? Oh, it, it's, it's amazing. It's just really amazing. So, um, How long on average does it take you to write a book? Oh, gosh. I can't even remember. Uh, there were days when I would write six hours a day. Um, and... Now, I, I think now it's easier because I'm more fluid, I'm more practiced, um, but now I'm having, I think when you're new and you're learning, 
you're more spontaneous. And then as you become more experienced and you know a little bit more about writing, you're more restrained. So I find that it's a little bit harder for me to write now because I auto-correct, you know, I auto-edit. And, you know, again, my mentors say, just get it done. You know, just whatever you're writing, get it done, get the first draft done and then go back. Um, but that's hard to do because yeah, I, because I've learned enough to know I get to the end of the sentence and it's just like, no, that's not right. So. Well, I think self-editing has also ruined us for reading for pleasure. Do you still have time to read for pleasure? And if so, what genres do you read? I, yes, I do. I read all the time, I, all the time. And it's like right now I'm reading, um, Andy wears, it's called Project Hail Mary, um, simply because he's a master of world building. I, I mean, he makes, he makes stuff that really shouldn't be interesting. So compelling that you can't put it down. And, um, then again, I'm in the, I'm in the middle of the Copenhagen trilogy, which is a very dark. It's a very heavy uh, semi, you know, auto fiction, and it's divided into childhood, young young adulthood, and then adulthood. And the, the child part of it is very difficult to read because it's very dark. So but that's what I'm reading right now. You know, Andy Weir self published The Martian. And it had, I did not know that. And it had know. such uh, phenomenal success. I think he was picked up immediately from oh, <laughs> agents and publishers. Great, great science fiction. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm not a big science fiction fan, but that I thought was wonderful. And, and his project, Hail Mary, is really good, too. I, I have had a hard time putting it down. So. Do you like to do your research before you begin writing or as you go along? Um, with Judah, I did it before because I thought there was a lot, although I knew a lot about polio, um, there were some specifics I really wanted to get correct. There's a scene in the book where he gets trapped in a, in an iron lung. And I wanted to make sure that was an accurate, you know, that when I de depicted it, that it was accurate. And so I did read a whole lot about that. Um, as far as, is my clocked out piece, that's a little bit more ingrained and experiential. So I'm drawing from experience and a lot of the creativity has to come from disguising identities, protecting privacy and that sort of thing. So, um, and again, since I've been retired, I have to make sure in terms of setting that I give a, a, a timestamp to the setting because some of my stuff that I did as a nurse probably people don't even do anymore, you know, so. What do you think was the best money you've ever spent as a writer? <sighs> on classes, on classes, um, because through my, my, I took classes at UT Dallas, I took them at SMU, um, and I've taken them through, we have an organization called Writing Workshops Dallas, um, and Every time I've taken a class, I've always gotten great criticism. I've learned a lot. Um, and again, you, know, you get this network of, of writing family that really is important because, you know, for it's a very solitary pursuit. Writing is very solitary. 
and it can be very, very lonely. And my husband is very supportive of my writing, but he's not sure he understands my passion. So it's really nice to be around writers. So I, I think my classes have done probably the best money I've had that I've done. I just had that very conversation today with my own husband. Um, he doesn't understand the passion of writing. <laughs> He's an engineer, if that tells you anything. Yeah, no, I, I understand that perfectly. Well, Cindy, our writers over 50 are unique. Do you have any parting advice for writers 50 and above? If it's something you'd love to do, don't be afraid to do it. Um, don't be afraid to submit. Don't be afraid to get rejection. They, uh, at the very beginning of this journey, as I was trying to reinvent myself from nurse to writer, I read an article that used baseball as an analogy for writing. And the one thing it said was, if you don't step to the plate, you can't hit a home run. So I write, I edit, I submit, uh, I celebrate my successes, I get frustrated at, at, at my rejection, but then I start over again and I keep going. And I think that um, when you find that passion, you can't stop. That's what I really I found, is that I can't stop. I thought to myself, you should stop doing this. And it's like, I think there'd be such a hole in my life if I didn't. So trust your heart and keep at it and, and you'll somebody that I always felt too you know Philip Glass the musician said that his music wasn't music until one person heard it and I feel that way about my writing if one person reads my story then it's a story I think that's wonderful advice and we're here to celebrate you celebrate all of our authors over 50 who are writing in life's sweetest third so thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing what you've learned um, on your journey along the way thank you for having me i appreciate it thank you for joining us today please look for authors over 50 every thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50 Please subscribe and share with a friend and check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third. <laughs>